write, but also inspecting the code after it's compiled for the uh, A, that it's compiled and, and, you know, it looks like it should and it acts like it should, you know, is, is part of that, that process as well. Um, and, and I think the other piece is making sure that your CI/CD pipeline itself is trustworthy. So, you know, a lot of folks forget that, you know, GitHub and their Jenkins servers and, and all the different pieces of automation in that CI/CD pipeline need to be protected because, you know, there, there are areas where uh, uh, you're particularly vulnerable. And, and then after code gets compiled and deployed, where it's a lot harder to detect. Uh, uh, that something went wrong. Well, hey there, it's Jeff Diverter, the host of Cloud Talk. And as you've probably figured out already, we're going back down the security rabbit hole. And today I'm joined by Gary Alterson from Rackspace Technology. We'll talk about zero trust. We're going to talk about tools and techniques and practices for helping keep your organization as safe and as secure as possible while exploiting the goodness of the cloud. The line between application and infrastructure is virtually invisible in these modern apps. The kind of thing that a global computing fabric with immense resilience and scale can deliver without even breaking a sweat. That's really what the promise of the cloud's always been. It's all focused on the business objectives. That's where we craft the plan. In the tech world, we like to celebrate the lone genius, but I'm just going to tell you right now, they're just the convenient face as founders to focus on. Welcome to Cloud Talk. Here's your host, Jeff Diverter. Every 90 days, that's how often I get an email. Well, probably it's more around, around every 70 days I start getting a reminder. And that reminder is, hey, Jeff, it's time to change that password. That corporate password needs to change. Oh, and we want it to be a tad more complex. And there are methods that I'll use to think through, you know, how do I change it and still remember it? How do I make it, you know, unique and somewhat special to me? But I know everybody in the world probably already knows it. And and I get frustrated. I read these articles that say, you know, you should have a good complex one and there are strategies maybe just to leave them like that all the time. And when when you change them all the time and enforce extra complexity, it, it, it pushes people towards bad behavior. Now, I would never do this, but I've heard stories of people writing them on sticky notes on the underside of their keyboard or we're literally on the monitor. Well, those are just two examples. But as I'm joined again by Gary Alterson from Rackspace, you've probably heard them all, Gary. Yeah, I have heard them all. I mean, in general, um, long, long history of password use and security, right? Uh, back when mainframes were the only thing that needed protection, you know, the thing we protected them with is, is passwords. Um, systems yep. have grown. Uh, uh, there's been a, a plethora of, uh, well, there's a horrible word, an evolution, a huge evolution in computing from, you know, mainframe to uh, client server to mobile to cloud. Um, yet the, the most common way to prove your identity still is passwords. Um, and there's multiple problems with them. You know, people, you know, complexity, and there's research now that shows, okay, after a certain period of time, complexity actually starts having a, a, a negative impact in terms of return because they get more complex, people forget them more, um, you know, more calls to the help desk, more people just instead of actually remembering their password, uh, 
being a little less satisfied and hitting, you know, reset my password on websites every single time they log in. Um, it, it, we're not really getting to the purpose of a password, which is proving your identity. And I think one of the ways we've proven that out over time is um, there's a, a, a concept we used when doing penetration testing uh, for customers in, in one of the old organizations I used to work for. Um, and, and they still do it. And, and I know other organizations do it as well. Um, it used to be that if you wanted to go test passwords, you'd have to go breach a system, get a password file, and then crack it. You know, these days you, you've got two other choices. One is I can just go phishing for passwords, set up a website, send, a, send an email saying, hey, sign up for... Uh, the company lunch or the company contest, you know, you send your username, password, and inevitably I'll get somebody. The, the other ways I can do it sort of blindly as well. Um, what we've learned, it, it, it's basically like sociologists will tell you that, you know, behavior in the aggregate is pretty predictable. Um, and we know this is true about passwords, right? Um, most people uh, uh, will reuse the same password in site after site after site, so they they can't remember. You know, they, they it's easier to remember. Um, and, and when they are forced to change, um, maybe they rotate a set of three or four passwords through, or you know, they they go from password one to password number two, like like they they just increment the number. Um, but there's a, there's a problem with throw that. a number at the end. I will. I'll, yeah. I'll. Yeah. I know, Jeff, you know, you have a friend that does that. Just one? Quote, unquote, friend. Um, But over the course of the past several years, due to various breaches, there exists on the dark web huge data sets of uh, identities and passwords uh, that various people have used over time in various systems. Um, And so we would go out on the dark web and we collected with, you know, based on our intelligence, uh, uh, we collected, you know, a million, a billion, two billion sort of password user combination sets. So then when we wanted to go uh, attack, wow, uh, uh, you know, perform a test against a, a system, we would just go look up, uh, use social networking, use LinkedIn, figure out who works at that company, right? What are some of their potential email addresses and, and identities and usernames? And then go search the database. Inevitably, we'd find somebody who uses the same password or, or something similar. Um, and so, w- what quickly became something that was really protective, now due to the ability to fish it or even just go harvesting on the dark web, um, you know, potential combination of passwords, and then people's behavior is I reuse it. Um, a password has lost a lot of meaning uh, as a modicum for identifying whether or not somebody is who they say they are and whether they should be trustworthy. Trust is a hard thing to be able to, you know, for an organization to be able to, you know, identify who, who's the good person and who's the bad person here. Especially, I mean, haven't we just made it, I don't say we made it worse, but the challenge has shown up this year because we can't even necessarily feel comfortable that they're inside the four walls of our network. Yeah, they're coming from anywhere. So what do we do? Yeah. Um, So that's why you're hearing a a lot in the industry about something called zero trust. Uh, Essentially, the concept there is that 
um, having alternate methods to identify and validate someone or something or some combination of those two is trustworthy and then ensuring some protected mm-hmm. conversation and, and you know, trust ensuring the conversation itself is trustworthy as well. Um, right. Essentially you go back 20 years when everybody was working in office buildings and everything was behind a firewall. Um, it became, it was sort of, standard practice to say, look, if, if you're inside my four walls and you're behind my firewall, right. I trust you, right? I, I trust the machine you're on. I, I trust that you are who you say you are. Uh, I might require you to have a password, um, but, but that's about it. Um, over time, we've recognized that as a model that's broken, we actually sort of knew it in, in early 2000s. There was a, a, a project called the, the Jericho Project, uh, sort of by Jericho Forum, which was a, how do we build architectures um, assuming that they're going to be deperimeterized? At the time, uh, uh, it was it was hard to do, right? Uh, the, the technology wasn't there to make it easy. That said, over time, the technology has gotten better. Um, there's a recognition that uh, uh, on the identity side, passwords don't provide uh, enough validation. Um, I think a- any security professional will tell you uh, uh, that, um, you know, like whether it's strong authentication, multi-factor authentication, risk-based authentication, um, and now you're hearing a lot about passwordless authentication, or right, let's, it, passwords aren't useful en- enough, so let's take them out of the equation, uh, take that headache out and, and right. do something else instead. Um, you know, it, it all is there and the technologies exist to have alternate ways to identify and validate trust uh, and then ensure the trustworthy. Got it. So this is really helpful to understand, you know, why we need to have this. And it's really important. You know, it makes me wonder also when we call it zero trust, is that really the right, the right term? Is it, or is it more like, I'm going to eventually trust you in this one place, but you can have to prove it again when you go over to this next step and you have to prove it again over there. Is that really what we're saying when we say zero trust? Yeah, it's not fully zero. Um, the There are, A, still things that you trust, right? You, you trust your identity store. You, you, you trust the system validating uh, identity, validating profiles uh, of machines or or. or code or, or, or whatnot. Um, and then after you validate, you, you trust for a certain period of time and then you, and then you revalidate. Um, right. so, uh, it, it's, uh, probably less trust is a better way to say it than zero trust. That said, not as sexy. Not as sexy, not the marketing department. Uh, I'm sure they started with that one and, and ended up at zero trust because it sounds, it's got a good buzz to it. You know, we're just, we're going to, we're, we're, we're implementing zero trust, but that, that makes me wonder, Gary. So, so is, is there a shrink wrap piece of software I can go get to go and install zero trust or how, how do we, how do we start that? How do we head down that road? Because obviously you've made the great point and we all knew this in our bones at this point that, that the way we're authenticating just with the username or password probably is not the best. Our users are reusing 
passwords. They're cycling through them. They're adding a number to the end and, and a myriad of other little sticky note ideas. So how do we go about actually tightening down so that we get to a point where, you know, we're, we're trusting just enough for just that moment? Yeah. So zero trust, uh, it, when you look at sort of the pure definition of it, it is an architectural approach. It's it's a framework or philosophical approach to how you build systems, applications, uh, uh, solutions. Um, and the, the idea being is you validate the trustworthiness of the components on the other side, whether that's a, an individual and an identity, a system, piece of software that you're communicating with, and then you ensure secure communications and you regularly revalidate it. That said, um, so, so there isn't like, you don't just go buy a piece of software and you're, and you're suddenly fully zero trust. That said, there are solutions that help support right. the zero trust approach. There are solutions in the remote access space uh, and the authentication and identity space. There are solutions in, uh, uh, as you look at workload, uh, um, in the cloud or, or container workload, there are solutions that support a zero trust approach. And the same thing's true on internal networking, right? You know, there are, there are solutions that allow you before you allow somebody on your wireless or a device on your wireless to perform a validation of trustworthiness, whether that's against a computer or against an IOT device or piece of OT device, you know, piece of your, your, your factory, essentially assembly line. Um, and, and all these pieces come together for a solution that is a, a um, helps implement the zero trust framework. Okay, so framework. Very glad you made that clear. And it's part of an overall strategy. Now, let's start from square one. Gary, you've been hired. You are you are the main security guy at this brand new company that we have. It's a startup. In fact, startups coming in, there's a hundred people outside the door, figurative door, and they're they're ready to come in and grab their laptops and get to work. But before we can do that, let's start at the most basic level. The challenge I'm gonna give you is all of those hundred people are gonna be remote workers, because that's just how we do things these days. And we we can get a wider talent pool. Those hundred hundred workers can be in in varying geographies. So, so how do we start this up? Again, I'm going to tell you, we got nothing. So uh, I want to get these folks to a point when they can get to a corporate internet. I want to get them to a point where they can get to, uh, I don't care if we're the 0365 or whether it is um, um, uh, or, or Gmail. What are some of the tools and things we start to put in place, again, from the foundation level, to build up an environment that that is, uh, we talk about zero trust, but you're trying to build a, uh, an IT environment that is trustworthy, that we can trust that data because it hasn't been poached or tampered with. So, so where do we start? Yeah, the interesting thing is whether you're starting new or whether you're starting in a legacy brownfield environment, I think the, the easiest place to start and the the fastest return is to start in terms of identity and remote access. So one is, is build a, 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 an identity store where and, and manage it so that you know who is, who is who and what kind of people you want to authorize, right? And, and validate identity of, and then have those people when they log in, um, basically prove their trustworthiness, meaning um, 
number one, uh, 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 they authenticate with more than just a password. They use multi-factor authentication, a password plus another uh, um, identifying factor, whether that be a one-time token, there's, there's software out there that will actually give you an alert on your phone and you just validate, hey, uh, uh, yes, I did try to log in, thank you, that is me. Um, or, you know, biometrics, uh, um, you know, whatever it is, some kind of second factor. But I, I don't think that's all, okay. right? Um, the, the, the two other pieces that go into trustworthiness at this point is, um, can I trust the actual act of authenticating? Like, is there, so there's a risk-based component to it. So if Jeff logs in from San Jose at noon and uh, Seoul, North Korea at one, Seoul, North Korea, Seoul, South Korea at one, geography, um, South Korea at one, that um, that's probably not a, a, a valid authentication attempt. So there's some evaluation. Does that attempt make sense? So there's a systematic approach that can yeah. that can look at that act of authentication as well. And right. of course, that's a great place where AI kind of kicks into yeah. to make sense. Some, of it. some intelligence behind that, some risk-based scoring behind it. And there's there's other yeah. factors as well. How often you've tried to log in. Um, a number of different factors. The, the other thing is to validate that your device you are using is also trustworthy. So profiling the device at login to understand, is it up to date with the latest uh, OS versions? Does it have the protections that I'm looking for? Um, if you're enforcing some kind of corporate policy that you're only using corporate devices, is it the corporate device that I'm expecting? Right. Um, yeah. you know, uh, um, and, and then you're, you're validating, not just Jeff, you're validating the pattern of the, the, the authentication and that device itself is trustworthy. And then you allow that access in. Um, and, and that zero trust access piece is probably, well, it's not, you know, totally easy. It's the easiest and fastest place to start where you'll start to see a quick uh, return on investment. And then from there you build out, you know, if you have a corporate LAN, you know, do you do the same kind of validation on, on the corporate LAN side of things? If you have a, a start to have, if you have IOT devices or you're a hospital and you have medical devices, you know, how can I validate the the authenticity of those devices and the trustworthy of those trustworthiness of those devices before they before I allow them on the network? Yeah, that's super important, especially you, know, you think about the the medical device type thing or or any IoT type device that might be coming in and connecting. I mean, we all think about the that that story of the casino that was hacked through the fish tank temperature sensor. I mean, you then you take that and now get out of, into any smart environment and think about how exposed it can be. So, I think your your points are incredibly valid, and that is, you know, how do we validate the act of the authentication and what they're trying to access? Yeah, and and let's face it, IoT is probably the hardest thing to to validate the trustworthiness of um, you know a lot of the systems that do that today uh, do it based on the device itself it's I, I i i profile the type of device it is and see if i can identify what it is whether it's an mri device or a factory robot or a temperature sensor and 
you know, then make some decisions based on uh, uh, what I know about that device. Because a lot of those devices can't be updated regularly, right? So I know there's vulnerabilities on those. So I either decide, oh, I'm not going to let that on, or I've decided I'm going to let it on, but it goes into a different part of the network segmented off from another piece of the network where I can monitor it more closely. And then I just monitor the traffic and, and look for anomalous traffic from what I'm expecting from that. Um, but it starts with, again, identifying what that device actually is so I know what to expect from it. And you know, the, the hard part in, in IoT is there's so many different kinds of devices that yeah. um, you know, the, the systems that do this have to build up you know, really large databases, essentially, uh, to do that. And, and there are vendors and, and solutions to that. And some are also very specialized, right? You know, and I'm sitting here thinking about how different, you know, you started, we started this conversation by talking about what it was like 20, 30 years ago. And, you know, if you trusted inside the wall and maybe you have to have a password, maybe not. Um, and now it's not just the act of the authentication and is it the right username and password pair, but is it, you know, coming from the right location? And then every bit of traffic after that, is it consistent with past profiles, with my, my, my worker type profile, with the IOT devices, you know, is it checking in like it's supposed to check in? Um, it, it's, it's not a passive environment anymore. I'm going to wait for someone to authenticate. I'm going to say yes or no. Have a nice day. Yeah. No. And then constraining. And all day. Every- and part of that is also to constrain the communication, right? You know, I mentioned IoT devices on, on a specific VLAN they, 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 where I can watch them and constrain their communication. Um, but there's, now there's a concept of not just doing that sort of at the macro level, but at the, at the micro level as well in individual conversations called micro-segmentation that is sort of the, the, that next level of ensuring that now that I've established the trustworthiness, I ensure that the communication is constrained in a way that I, I can provide some assurance that the communication is expected as well um, and, and, and enforce that. So, so user logging in on, on the device um, is, you know, is constrained to what that only, only that user can, can talk to. Uh, IoT device is constrained to only the, right. the conversations I expect it to have, right? If you're, thermometer and fish tank is talking to your financial database, there's probably something wrong. And, and so, you know, there, there are constraints that can be placed. Uh, um, and some of this is, um, you know, it used to be really, really hard to do micro segmentation and, and it, in a way it still is, but with the advent of AI and traffic analysis and, and you know, machine learning, you can build a profile and then look it over and validate. Is that what I would expect? Well, then if we bubble that up to the next level, you know, these devices and these people, they're, well, they're talking to, to, to databases, they're talking to applications. So now let's, you know, in this, in this cloudy based world, it's not just VM to VM communication anymore. Oftentimes there's no VM. It's, it's service here to container there in a very distributed world, which, you know, can be challenging. There's a couple of components when you look at it from a, cloud or, or workload perspective. And it doesn't matter if that workload is in containers. Uh, it doesn't matter if that workload is in VMs, but a lot of the same, uh, the, the same approach still applies. Um, you know, you want to validate essentially what is, what the code is in that workload. Um, 
does that code is that code what I'm expecting? Right in a container, that may mean you know you're, you're validating code signatures, uh, you're scanning the code as it's loaded in to make sure it's good. Um, you know the same thing on a VM, right? You know as you deploy your application into a, a VM, and these days a lot more, a lot of times that's that's automated. Um, as you deploy, making sure that the uh, code is what you expect it to be, um, that the server software, if it's server-based, is what you expect it to be, the software on the server is what you expect it to be, and then monitoring it from that baseline, right, to see if there's any changes. And then on top of that, again, learning and profiling what is the right behavior from a communication standpoint or from a process standpoint, and then enforcing that. So if processes start to deviate from what you expect that behavior to be, or the behavior in a container starts to deviate from what you expect it to be, or the communication isn't what you expect it to be, uh, um, you know, taking an action to constrain that uh, action, that communication, um, or in, you know, basically disqualifying that container or VM as being untrustworthy, and, and you're you're killing it or or taking it out of, uh, you know, out of out of the set. Well, then let's think about it also in the context of, um, you know, we, we've taken it all the way from the user, all the way up into devices, into the networking, into the application itself. Well, let's get deeper into the application and tell me how do we then do this even inside of the code? How do we take a security first mindset, a zero trust security first mindset in a, from the development stage itself? Yeah, I think that's where, where you start to start to get interesting. Um because that that's still an area where where I think the technology is, is evolving and where the practices are evolving. But we've got this concept called uh, DevSecOps, uh, which is essentially a fancy word for saying um, we want to ensure that the code being built within a DevOps environment is secure. That it's it's it, mm. you know it's got the right input validation. It's the, the code is handling data appropriately, um, that all the, all the standard sort of security best practices are being followed. And, and doing so in, in a way that's agile and automated, um, that allows code to be built quickly, but also validated quickly in, in the CICD pipeline before it's deployed. And then as that code gets compiled, again, validating that the binaries that are compiled uh, is what you expect before you deploy them. Hmm. Uh, that's, uh, uh, I think, a key learning from the uh, uh, SolarWinds breach. Uh, and we don't know the details um, behind how SolarWinds built their products uh, totally, but we do know that the attacker was able to uh, inject into their code as it was being compiled malicious code as well. And so the... Um, the, that, that practice of not only ensuring my developers are doing the, the thing that they're doing right, but also inspecting the code after it's compiled for the uh, A, that it, it's compiled and, and, you know, it looks like it, it should and it acts like it should, it, you know, is, is part of that, that process as well. Um, and, and I think the other piece is making sure that your CICD pipeline itself is trustworthy. So, you know, a lot of folks forget that, 
you know, GitHub and their Jenkins servers and, and all the different pieces of automation in that CICD pipeline need to be protected because, you know, they're, they're areas where uh, uh, you're particularly vulnerable. And, and then after code gets compiled and deployed, where it's a lot harder to detect uh, uh, that something went wrong. Well, and I can't imagine they're the only ones, but I remember reading an article um, just a couple of months ago from my Microsoft release that Visual Studio now utilizing Azure in the background to not just validate the code itself, but validate it from a security point of view, making sure that that just like what you're talking about, pre-compile, post-compile, uh, as well as anything that the developers are doing that could create a vulnerability for them in the future. Yeah, yeah, I, I, extremely important. I think it's an area that practices are still evolving and that uh, organization, it's one of those areas that organizations need to catch up on. And, and to be fair, we've never been really great at code security and, and application security as an industry. And then on top of it, you know, you add the uh, speed component in, in DevOps and the automation components, and, and it becomes even more important because, you um, there's, there's more basically attack surface uh, on the supply side of things. Before. Well, and I was about to, to bring that up because, you know, Gary, you and I work in this environment where we have, you know, we, we preach from the mountaintops, you know, hey, agile, move fast, promise of the cloud, you know, all this capability. Um, but we just painted a picture that from the point when uh, when somebody wakes up and they grab their device all the way through their authentication, the network, the everything down to the day-to-day of what they're doing and creating, which is incredibly dynamic when we think about a developer creating something new from scratch. How do you code around that or prepare for that on, on the security side? So my question is, maybe some strategies, some thoughts of how do we get as tight and as much security included into that entire chain, that entire life cycle of a, of a developer from morning to night, but still allow them to move quickly, to be agile, to, to help push their, their company forward. We can probably do another six podcasts on this topic. Um, but, you know, to, to, to summarize, uh, you know, first and foremost, uh, train your developers, um, not that that's, you know, we, we know that's not the panacea, uh, but train your developers to write secure code, um, you know, perform testing of that code in development, uh, uh, both pre-compile and post-compile. Um, uh, as you compile and test, build uh, models of, of how that, that code is supposed to behave, because that's that model that allows you to go and go, hey, um, that communication there, that's that's the communication I want to constrain, I want to allow, um, that's the behavior that I want uh, uh, on the server and, and the behavior I don't. Um, some of the cloud providers I've worked with in the past do this really well. Like they know how their code is supposed to behave. Um, and uh, when they see something that just doesn't behave right, you know, because they have that scale, they, they, just, just, they just burn it, you know? It might've been totally legitimate, but it was a behavior they weren't expecting. You know, that process gets burned, another another process comes up, uh, uh, and then they monitor the behavior again. Um, you know, and then as you, as you deploy that workload, and there's a couple things you can do as well. One, like I said, you know, apply the zero trust concepts. You know, is the code trustworthy? Is it what I was mm-hmm. expecting? Is the behavior trustworthy? Is the communication what I was expecting? Constrain that communication, segment it. 
Um, and then, you know, recognize also that there's still going to be, you know, errors in the code uh, uh, that probably get through. And that's where you put things on top of code like a, a runtime application protection engine called RASP or a web application firewall in front of the application to just provide a little bit more uh uh, assurance and, and, and defense in depth around the application. Um, but, you know, I, it, it all comes back to starting with that, that base of, you know, understanding what is trustworthy, validating the trust, um, building code that is trustworthy, worthy, making sure that code gets deployed in a way that you validate that it's still trustworthy once it gets deployed. So it's really, uh, I think, excellent discussion as we think about zero trust. Zero trust, from a layman's point of view, as they understand it, I always think about it from the context of an individual and to make sure that the individual is doing the right thing. But really, zero trust needs to be applied to everything, every person, every device, every code that you write or that you buy. And you need to put the right protections above it, behind it, and between it to make sure and monitor the behavior to make sure that it's doing what it says it's supposed to do. Yeah, and that's why it's it's a, it's a framework. It's an architectural approach um, towards yeah. building security uh, uh, and security architecture versus a, a product you just buy. There are components of that you can buy products and solutions for, like the, the access piece, um, but, you know, that's just one piece of the puzzle. Um, and, and it's the piece, to be fair, that like people are going to start with. Like I said, it's, it's probably the best bang for the buck that you can get quickly, which is, which is always important to your, your executives. And then you move on to some of the more complex pieces. All right. So, so one more question, and it's probably one of those that could become six more podcast episodes, but that is how well do the cloud providers help companies do this native tools and capabilities um, across Azure, across AWS or Google? Suffice it to say, um, everybody's aware of this, right? And, and if you go to Google, right, you know, Google has Beyond Corp, which is their implementation of zero trust access. And, and they have tooling that, that will help support you from a security standpoint. Microsoft and AWS have the same thing. Um, so everybody's well aware of the problem. You know, the mass scale providers are probably best positioned to, if they don't have a solution now, you know, check back a couple quarters from now, there, there probably will be a solution and it will be rapidly evolving because that's what they do. Uh, and, and then there are always sort of the third party technology solutions and things you can build yourself as well. Well, and to, to, to also bear in mind the fact that even if they've got perfect, great solutions to solve for their individual clouds. They do just that, solve for their individual clouds. And most companies have upwards of 20 different types of providers that they're right. working with. Right. So uh, at some point, you got to bring all that back together in, and manage it holistically. Exactly. That's why it is a framework uh, that you apply holistically across your environment. And it's an, an approach to building systems and building software and building remote access and infrastructure that is really the core of zero trust, not an individual solution. Because most of what you hear these days are, I'm going to choose cloud A or B or C based on the fact that, well, I think it's better than everybody else. How many people, well, are, are they considering security or should they be considering how well they do security? I'm going to bet that the majority of people 
don't consider security as part of that decision-making approach. Um, but I'm going to recommend that they do. Um, that said, um, you know, keep in mind, like they're always going to be evolving and, and evolving quickly. Um, and one provider might have a strong, you know, a, a strong uh, solution in one area like access uh, that the other one will probably have a solution for, you know, in the next few few quarters. Um, but I think as you go to cloud, it gives you the opportunity to reevaluate how you've implemented security and, and how you've implement models, implemented models of trust um, and you've executed on security operations within those models of trust. There are capabilities each provider has that allows you to evolve beyond what you are actually capable to do in a data center that you're managing yourself uh, uh, fairly statically versus, you know, dynamically in, in a cloud environment. This has been Cloud Talk. You can find Cloud Talk wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And be sure to check out more content from Rackspace Solve at solve.rackspace.com. Always grateful when Gary comes around these virtual podcast studios to help give us some information to keep our businesses safer in an online world. Well, here's something I'm incredibly excited about. And in all honesty, I don't have all the data yet. But later this summer, sometime in early August, we're going to bring back the Solve Conference. You see, many years ago, we put these conferences on all around the world, quite literally. Well, this year, it's going to be virtual, and it's going to be incredible. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So just keep listening. I'll have more details as we get closer. Now, if you have any comments or questions, maybe even a suggestion for us over here at Cloud Talk, well, you can just send us an email to cloudtalk.rackspace.com. And as always, a big thank you to Dell Technologies for their continued support of the Solve Thought Leadership Program here at Rackspace. If you want to see some of the results of all of the work that we've done, just go over to rackspace.com solve. You'll find all kinds of information that's been curated by the office of the CTO here at Rackspace Technology. And until next time, I'm Jeff Deverter for Cloud Talk. <laughs>